The voices of protesters and advocates calling for change are the sounds of social movements in America today. Movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too, movements for LGBTQ rights, abolition, reproductive justice, immigration reform, and environmental justice. Lawyers play a crucial role in these movements, but it might not be in the way you think. That's the focus of the Movement Lawyering Lab course taught here at Duke Law. And that's the topic we'll be exploring in this episode of the Duke Law Podcast. Hello, I am Jesse McCoy, a clinical professor of law at Duke Law. I also teach social justice lawyering with Professor Ann Gordon, and I'm the supervising attorney for Duke's Civil Justice Clinic. With me today is Professor Ann Gordon, who is the creator and teacher of the Movement Law Lab and is a clinical professor of law and director of the externship program at Duke Law. A former criminal defense attorney, Professor Gordon now teaches courses on designing a fulfilling life in the law, social justice lawyering with me, and since fall of 2021, the Movement Lawyering Lab. Next with us is Vanessa Kavarenga, a second year student pursuing a JD LLM in international and comparative law. Vanessa is president of the Black Law Students Association and policy director of the Duke Innocence Project. Prior to law school, Vanessa worked for two years at Organize Florida as a political organizer, moving up to acting regional director. Also joining us is Evelyn Blanco. Evelyn is a second year student pursuing a JD and has worked with the Duke Immigration and Refugee Project and Duke's Children's Law Clinic and Wrongful Convictions Clinic. Both of these students took the Movement Lawyering Lab last fall. Join us as we discuss the foundations and tactics of movement activism, how lawyers work with social movements to build power and create change, and what students in this course learned from working with lawyers and organizers involved in social movements across the United States. Please enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. I am clinical professor Jesse McCoy, and I'm looking forward to leading today's discussion with fellow clinical professor Ann Gordon. Hey, Jesse. 2L Vanessa Cavrenge. Thanks for having me. And 2L Evelyn Blanco. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about an important topic, one that's resonant to the moment this country is in, and one that's near and dear to my heart as a lawyer, social movement lawyering. We'll be discussing how Duke Law is approaching this topic in its social movement lawyering lab course taught by Professor Gordon, which both of you, Evelyn and Vanessa, have completed. To do so, I'd like to start by looking at its origins. So, Anne, what is movement lawyering in the United States? Movement lawyering, it's sometimes called community lawyering. Uh, A lot of us use that interchangeably. It means really reorienting away from lawyers, instead taking direction directly from impacted communities um, and from organizers. So the basic concept here is that lawyers aren't the leaders of social change. To movement lawyers, the law is inherently regressive and it's precedent based, right? We always have to look back and see what's done before. And it frankly reinforces racial capitalism and misogyny and all sorts of other hierarchies that um, we're trying to get away from. It's also full of lawyers who are trained to be conservative in their legal opinions. And sometimes that means that we're stuck in saying why things can't happen. So this is why, by and large, lawyers are not the best people to be leading social movements. It also, when you look at the legal profession, although it is changing, 
it's still very white. And the idea of movement lawyering is reorienting toward communities of color as the source of solutions to social problems. And this doesn't mean that lawyers don't have a role to play. Lawyers have a really critical role to play in the movement. We can translate how systems work and we can use our kind of privilege as insiders to be able to translate that to other groups that may not have that same kind of insider status. Um, We know where the levers of power can be pushed. We know how decisions get made. We can help with things like education and messaging. Movement lawyers do things like strategic advising and help with campaign planning, messaging. You know, we always tell, tell our students, lawyers, we think and we speak and we write. We can use all of those skills to help movements. But when you look at who the real leaders are in movement lawyering, we really emphatically believe that it's not the lawyers. It's the people who we then give the information to that then they can take that information to realize a vision for change. And why do we, both as a nation and as a legal profession, need movement lawyering? We need movement lawyering because at its root, movement lawyering is about power and kind of trying to reorient the power away from traditional institutions, and that includes lawyers and even the law in general, and toward the power of the people to make change. Uh, And I know, Jesse and Vanessa, you've got some things to say about that as well. Yeah. Power is organized money and organized people. It's not, you know, your followers on a TikTok or a Instagram. It's not, you know, being a top whatever on a Forbes or Fortune 500 list. It's organized money and organized people. And I think it's just like really important to remember that, like who creates and moves change. It's not just, you know, a billionaire throwing money at things. And when we talk about power, I think it's also important to recognize that in this moment, the demographic of lawyers are changing. Uh, We're now hearing voices and hearing about issues that the law has historically been able to overlook and overshadow. And in many cases, it is done so in a deliberate fashion. And movement lawyers, we need movement lawyering because not only does it name that um, and actually speak it, which there's value in that, but it's also then using that strategically to try to have an actual real evaluation of what's the landscape here and how do we um, do kind of a power analysis about how to make change. And movement lawyering, this is not a new concept. I mean, technically, one could argue that movement lawyering has been operational without definition, uh, really beyond the 1950s. Uh, However, movement lawyering, as we know it, was developed in the 1990s to adapt to a shifting legal landscape. After so many attorneys seem to have fumbled or sold out the needs of the greater community uh, within that time frame. But we know that there were lawyers like Bill Kunstler in the Chicago 8 trial uh, who assisted clients in telling their stories and having the kind of trial that they wish to have, uh, even if at the time it seemed unorthodox. I would say that the recognition of these techniques is still fairly new in the eyes of legal advocacy. Maybe I can jump in there for a second, too. And, and it's sort of also a reframing of the idea of organizing. Community organizing has, I think, a lot of its basis in the kind of Saul Alinsky method of the 60s of largely kind of white male organizers going into communities, um, you know, doing a campaign and unionization effort, et cetera, and then kind of using those same techniques and moving on to other communities, which was, you know, great and very important. But this is really a reframing of that. It's, well, it's not these outsiders that are best equipped to come in and tell people how to make change. It's really a sort of grassroots, homegrown effort 
made up of people who have been in community, have seen the levers of power, have already made great strides in making social change. And those are the people who are going to be best equipped to lead movements. And, and the idea behind movement lawyering is just we're the kind of helpers of that. We're not the ones who are going to be out front. Well, given all that, why do you believe it's important uh, that a law school teach movement lawyering? Uh, it's important to teach movement lawyering in law school because law school is really about lawyers. It really centers lawyers and everything we talk about, which, again, makes sense. But this is really a challenge to that. And it's an opportunity for students to see the real way that social change gets made. I think it's really important just to see a course like this at a law school because it's just where I think lawyering interacts with the real world, because a lot of the things we're learning, the doctrine, um, the statutes, they just seem like these random arbitrary things. Like I'd never seen a lot of these concepts before I came to law school and just having a class that's radically different that just gets into life and dealing with people is just radically important. And I think it's a good experience that every law student would benefit from. And I think uh, Vanessa really hit the nail on the head when she said radical, because I feel like this course really helped me get a radical shift in my mentality, because as a law student, I think I'd been kind of socialized to say, oh, um, the role of lawyers is litigation, something like impact litigation or corporate law, et cetera. But when I came into law school, I already had uh, faced a lot of these systematic issues. But I wasn't thinking that my law degree could really address them because law school doesn't tell me that my law degree can address them. So I think it really gave me a radical shift in my mentality back to my roots and back to wanting to make a change. So what I hear you saying is that we're escaping the traditional notion that there's only one way to be a lawyer. And I'm just curious for the students, how has this changed the way that you view your future work? For me, it's drastically different. I'm coming in as someone who is an organizer before. And so for me, it just makes me critically reexamine those pro bono projects, for example, that we're going to do. Um, how are we working with communities? Are we coming in and you know, trying to take over someone's project? Um, who's leading that? Whose values and issues are is leading the work? And that's something that I think cemented for me that I will always check. I think that it's important to be teaching this in law school because even when we do talk about social change, so much of that comes from a frame of a charismatic male leader, like maybe someone like a Thurgood Marshall, who we kind of prop up as being the, the front of the movement and the real change maker. But this is a reorientation around a much more um, broad based kind of political education that we do also in our class. We, the organizations that we work with are led by black women through a, a queer black feminism lens, an abolition lens, an anti-capitalist lens, et cetera. And we talk through all of these concepts in class because being grounded in these politics, as you were saying, Evelyn, the sort of radical shift in, in how we're even just framing these issues is a really critical piece of learning for the semester. You know, not everyone who takes the class has to agree with all of these things, of course, but because of the organizations that we work with, it's really kind of essential background knowledge that our students have this political education before they go out into the field and work with these kind of, frankly, visionary organizing groups. And another important aspect about movement lawyering is we have to develop uh, the understanding that court is not the initiator of social change in this country. If you look at any of the major cases that have involved uh, any kind of change, you have to first look at the time frame and see what was going on conceptually. 
before that court even made a decision. And the reason why the courts oftentimes make decisions and why uh, opinions that could be dissenting opinions in the past oftentimes become the majority opinion of the future is because of social movements and people maintaining activism and awareness in the community about inequalities that we deal with on a daily basis. And can you walk through what the Movement Lawyering Lab is and how the course is structured? Absolutely. So we've organized this as an integrated externship. Duke Law School has a couple of these. And the idea here is that you've got a seminar and coursework, but then also an experiential component and that these two things really come together such that the coursework informs the work that you're doing in the field and the fieldwork helps kind of make concrete the coursework that you're doing. So um, the first part of the course is really kind of definitions of movement lawyering. As you all were saying, this is a total reorientation of how we think about doing legal work and, and making social change. So we spend a good amount of time on definitions. We do some critiques of the traditional models of lawyering and particularly lawyering as it exists in social change spaces. We do some orientation around these political concepts, such as black queer feminism and abolition and other sort of dynamics that exist, the frameworks in which we're working. And then we have some student-led classes, which were brilliant, you guys, last semester, based on what the students are working on, either sort of subject matter. These are the concepts behind the work that we're doing, or even just techniques. We had a great class on kind of communication style. And those are really up to the students to to take the rest of the class wherever they're thinking. We have a significant focus on sustainability, kind of how to sustain yourself while, you know, being in this movement long term. I mean, certainly my interest is that students go out into the world doing this work and can do it long term, um, not just burning really bright and then giving up on it because they simply can't sustain it. So we've got a good uh, focus on that as well. And then we do a more kind of traditional what it would look like in a clinic, case rounds, um, supervision work, team meetings, check-ins on the work product, et cetera. And um, we do that both with, uh, or the students do that both with me and directly with our partner organizations, um, specifically the organizers and lawyers that they're working with. So it always seems like a really short semester because we're doing so much great stuff. But at the end, I think students really look back and feel like not only have they built their knowledge in really significant ways, but they've also contributed in really meaningful ways to these organizations focused on these really critical issues. Vanessa, what were some of the most important takeaways you learned about movement lawyering? Um, I think it was really useful to evaluate you know, the role of a lawyer and even like a protest, because, for example, I spent uh, the entire summer of 2020 before I came to law school protesting. And um, they can get really emotionally intense and people get really riled up and you get lost in the cause and you have to think for a second, wait, is it helpful for other people in the community for me to get arrested? And I, I like jokingly say I got really good at dodging the police, but I was, cause I was thinking about it. I don't want to have to explain this, um, you know, when I go to get barred. But being a lawyer, it's more helpful to the community if you don't get arrested so you can bail other people out. Yeah, we definitely emphasize that in class. We don't, we don't want any of our students to be out on the street getting arrested. I mean, part of the point of the class is to figure out where strategically we fit in best and not just we as a group of lawyers, but, you know, you like where your personality fits best, where can you best serve the movement, but then also make it sustainable for yourself. And that that doesn't involve a one size fits all solution. It really involves a lot of um, reflection and, and self-knowledge about where best you're going to fit in. 
Anne made a really great point about talking about how we can find our own role in the social movement. And I think that that's probably my biggest takeaway from a movement lawyering as well, was figuring out what my own role was in a community. And I think also just learning that movements and change can be community based because I think very oftentimes in law school, but even in life, we think a leader is a singular person or a singular group of people. And I think it really helped me to see that different people lead in different ways and can lead all collectively to make a better change than just a singular person. So for me, it was really helpful to kind of gain that knowledge and also some confidence that I too had a role in these big changes and that I didn't have to be the great charismatic one singular person to make change. So that really helped me as well. And it's such a great message for you all starting out in your legal careers too, right? Like you don't have to be the one person that is going to be out front. Like your job can be to support others who have been in this a lot longer, who have a lot more knowledge. You can come in with an area of expertise you already have. Like, you know, Vanessa, you have your great organizing background. Evelyn, you've got, you know, a tech background. Your graphics design background even was really uh, useful last semester. And so you're able to kind of step in where you can be most useful, which which I think is really great. And I think decreases the barrier to entry um, for for you all just starting out. So in a way, it kind of changes the way that law school works in general, because I think we're accustomed to the traditional notion of destroying everything you were before you got here to rebuild you as a lawyer, when in actuality, what brought you here are the skill sets that will help you and change in the future. So I know you all have been uh, working with various groups and various social justice movements. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the work that you all are doing. Sure. So I worked with NC SPAN statewide police accountability network, specifically focusing on the collective goals of defunding the police, doing some budget analysis. So my job, which looked radically different from what I thought it would be, was actually looking at sheriff county budgets and analyzing how much went to certain spending, like how much went to community spending versus how much went to sheriff spending versus how much went to housing, just to see where where's the money going? You know, follow the money, see where uh, where we're investing our capital. So that was really interesting for me just to see how different counties differed. And um, for example, bigger counties tended to give a little bit more to community funding, but proportionally it was still way less than they gave to sheriff funding. So it's just very interesting doing some data analysis, uh, which I had no background in previously. So it was good to get those skills. And the way that I anticipate that they would use the budget analysis that I did was there are upcoming sheriff elections in North Carolina. And so understanding where money is going can help to create a message going forward as to, oh, we need more funding going towards communities instead of just the police state and the sheriffs. So I expect it to be used in that way. And As Anne alluded to, I did create some graphics just showing in visual format where the money is going. So I anticipate they may use that either for internal education or external education. I also did work with SPAN and my project focused on the 99 crime bill. And we were looking at grants that are awarded to local municipalities and counties. And so that was something that was supposed to um, help the people's process. And so they had like a convening of different orgs and people and they're trying to create 
to radically reimagine um, what the community could be like if we use the spending and money to help make communities safer from a community-led perspective. And so that means, you know, investing in other areas. And so we were looking at where these grant, the grants were going from the federal government. And it was so wild, you know, to see that, you know, NASA was involved with giving out grants that were that went towards like expanding mass incarceration. And so the work that my partner and I did was to record those grants down and to see where exactly they were being spent. So students are also engaged in work with IDBLA and IRWOD. Could you tell us a little bit about those organizations? Absolutely. That's a lot of acronyms. <laughs> so IDBLA stands for In Defense of Black Lives Atlanta, and we're doing two different projects with them this semester. And actually one last semester that uh, in the cohort that, that Evelyn and Vanessa were involved in. Last semester, they were looking at infrastructure and specifically around potholes and it's one of those issues that if you spend about 30 seconds thinking about why is this a justice issue, you can absolutely think, well, you know, where are potholes getting repaired? Where is the funding for these sorts of things? And what are the effects when potholes don't get repaired? Well, it messes up people's cars. People can't get to work. People can't get their kids to childcare. It costs a lot of money to repair your car if you've gone into this terrible pothole and it, and it messes up your car. So IDBLA really sees this as a justice issue. And they came to us to try to do some analysis about, um, yeah, where this funding is, how long does it take the city to respond to, to reports of potholes, and then also asking us questions like, what happens if we just repair these potholes ourselves? What are the risks that we open ourselves up to? So th that was a fascinating project. And I think the students really got a lot out of both the project and meeting with those organizers. And then this semester, they're working on two different projects, one around um, food apartheid. Um, we used to call them food deserts, but food desert kind of sounds like it's a naturally occurring um, phenomenon in nature. And really, it's about um, it's a much more deliberate um, sort of segmenting than a desert would be. I mean, the idea here is that there are certain neighborhoods in Atlanta that just don't have access to food. Um, so you, you've got people who have to either collectively get together and do their grocery shopping or they have to spend a really long time on public transportation or getting a cab um, because there simply aren't grocery stores in their neighborhood. Um, and when I think of some of the other areas in Atlanta or even around here in Durham and Chapel Hill, where there are just grocery stores, it seems like, you know, every quarter mile, that's just simply not true in a lot of neighborhoods in Atlanta. So there, we're doing some analysis about where do people live? Where are grocery stores? How do people access healthy food, et cetera? And then another project that we're doing with In Defense of Black Lives Atlanta is also um, looking at the link between gentrification and policing. Who's calling the police about what? What are they reporting? What kind of claims are being made? And are police playing a role in gentrification in some of these uh, neighborhoods in Atlanta? And IRWOD, the other <laughs> long acronym you mentioned, Jesse, stands for Indict the Racist War on Drugs. And this is a coalition out of um, Chicago and New York with um, the People's Law Office and the Center for Constitutional Rights. And the idea here is that it's a group of lawyers and organizers trying to seek reparations for the war on drugs. As we all know at this point, the war on drugs was not started because of some idea of public health or a real worry or concern about the dangerousness of drugs. Really, it was specifically targeted to undermine the political power of black communities. 
And now that we know that there are people in prison for years, decades, the rest of their lives because of this policy, is there some creative ways we can think of to get people out now that we know very clearly the origins of some of, of these policies? So, so those are an example, a couple of examples of organizations we work with. We also work locally with an organization called Emancipate North Carolina right here in our backyard. This is focused on dismantling structural racism and mass incarceration across North Carolina through a three-pronged strategy of organizing, narrative shifting, and litigation. So just a lot of tremendous, amazing, inspiring organizations that our students get to work with. That sounds like you all are involved in quite a bit. I'm curious for the students, how do the topics that you cover in the Movement Lawyering Lab directly inform your other coursework at law school? Yes, well, as Anne mentioned, uh, part of the Movement Lawyering Lab is actually becoming educated about political and social issues and philosophies that we might not otherwise be exposed to. And I feel like that education really helped me to get a new lens on the work that I'm reading. For example, sometimes we read torts cases or constitutional law cases where there's clearly a racial issue or a gender issue or some kind of discrimination, but we don't talk about it in class because that's not the topic. It's about federalism. It's not about racial issues. But by getting this political education and um, really understanding where a lot of these policies come from, where a lot of the law comes from, I think it really changes the students' perspectives on the legal education they're getting and to be more critical thinkers and really engage with the underlying social issues of a lot of these court opinions that we're reading. Absolutely. And I think it really went well with some of the courses I was taking, like my advanced con law, um, looking at the civil rights movement with uh, Professor Lovelace, because, you know, we talked about people like Ella Baker and she was an organizer and a lot of organizing theory comes out of her work and thinking about, you know, how do we How do you set up an organization or your work to have succession so that, you know, it goes on after you? And it tied in well with this concept of self-care and sustainability in the movement. And just like, how do we bring that to our classwork? Because I think, you know, that's something that is so vital in law school that we all just don't talk about. And in the legal profession and just in our society in general, where your value comes from working all the time, what are you producing? How can you be productive? How can you have a side hustle? And it's just, you know, all these things where you're not thinking about how do you sustain yourself? Yes. And uh, just as Vanessa said, I really think that the Movement Lawyering Lab created a space not just to learn and to be educated, but to kind of find ourselves in some ways, because I think in law school, I really lost a lot of myself, a lot of my spark, because, you know, after reading pages and pages of opinions and other people's uh, decisions and all of this, I was worn down. So it was just really nice to have a space where I can express myself. I can, you know, we ranted a little in the beginning. We did some yoga, things like that. And sure, it might not sound like it makes a difference, but in my really tough week where I'm already like, I don't feel like myself anymore. It's really nice to just have that space. Yeah, no, I definitely want to make a plug for this class. It was restorative. Like it made me really reevaluate how I viewed rest and myself. And it was therapeutic. It was just changing, like transformative. Law school teaches you guys so much about what you don't know yet. Right. You're in school. That that makes sense. But, you know, you also are whole people coming into law school as well. And so I think it's a really wonderful thing to be able to tap back into that and also make room 
for who you all are as people, not just as students and future professionals? So I definitely like to make up the case for why if you want to be a corporate lawyer, you want to work on like tax law, transactional law, why you should take this class, because I think it's really important to understand how your firm your business is going to use like pro bono work and movement work to like make money and to sell their business. And so it's you don't think about it, but you could be part of, you know, inflicting harm. And I think it's really important to really evaluate the work that you're doing and your role in, in that work and how you might not realize how you might being trying to help an uh, organization or people and offering your free time, but you could be doing more damage to it. And I think it's really important as, you know, a lot of the firms work on a lot of these issues in their free time to look at how you specifically can help a community better or to just do it in a more informed way. And even if, you know, you're a tax lawyer, that that's really important and your time to other people is really important. You just want to make sure you're doing it from a way that's community led. Yeah, maybe actually, Vanessa or Evelyn, you, not to put you on the spot with things that we learned in class, but, you know, can you give a couple of examples of how, like what you're talking about, Vanessa, why can sort of traditional lawyering actually serve to undermine movements? How does that, how can we be doing anything but helping? <laughs> Well, I think it's easy um, for that to happen when lawyers are more focused on putting themselves, you know, in the camera at first and they're centering themselves as, you know, that charismatic leader figure um, being the forefront of this change. And that's not what happens. That completely ignores all the planning and the work of other organizers to be out on the street. And those things like push and create the change, not necessarily the lawyer who's speaking beautifully on camera. I think lawyers also have a tendency to focus the legal system and litigation as the answer, which really pigeonholes these organizations that might have much more creative ideas, ideas that might be more effective. I did work in budgeting for, you know, and data analysis for the Movement Lawyering Lab. Not what I was expecting. I was thinking I would be writing legal memos. And that's just we're products of the legal education system. And it tells us that litigation or you know, law is the result that we should be seeking. But it's not, to borrow a phrase from our class, it's not just about policy. It's about power. So the power and the dynamics and the ability to be creative thinkers is really lacking sometimes. No, absolutely. And I think sometimes lawyers hurt, too, when you say they're going to guide and just decide the direction of where something should go, because that's how things get done. And it leaves no space for creativity, which is not true. That's not the nature of movements. And for example, you know, if, say you're a tax lawyer and you think that the law can be changed in X, Y, Z ways in this way for your locality, you know, maybe you're not thinking about how money is power and who gets taxed what and how and how does that affect the county and the city and what communities like that's really important. And I think lawyers can really benefit from learning the ways in which they can just be more open minded and creative. So we know that there are a lot of different uh, movements on the ground doing a lot of great work. Uh, but this course is focused on Law for Black Lives. Uh, and could you explain the reason for that focus? Law for Black Lives is one of our main partner organizations, and their mission is to create a community of legal clinics across the country. So it's not just Duke Law School. There are similar projects and labs and clinics going on at Yale, at Cornell, at Howard at UC Irvine. I think that's just this semester, but there's been a huge cohort of, of law school clinics participating in this. And the idea is, is that they're working to support Black-led movement organizations 
train students in doing movement work and then creating this community of future lawyers with the skills and political philosophy to enable them to work effectively with Black-led coalitions. And I guess to get more at the root of your question as to why I, as a white woman, created a lab focused on Black lives, it's just simply unacceptable to me in 2022 that our legal and political institutions are still somehow maintaining that the law is neutral or that it is somehow just. You know, slavery was legal. The Holocaust was legal. Segregation and apartheid were legal, right? And so I felt like there needed to be a space to question the law's inherent goodness and also to fire students up about making change. And my own belief personally is that racism and misogyny form the basis of our most serious social ills in this country, mass incarceration, reproductive oppression, police brutality, the failure of the state to provide for its citizens most basic needs in the richest country in the world. And the way that I feel is the best way to address some of these issues is through organizations and and community-led groups, specifically led by Black people, by Black women, focused on intersectional and really collective liberation. It's that idea that none of us is free until all of us are free. And so we all just need to be playing a part in moving the ball forward. Jesse, I'm wondering if I can turn the next question around on you so you can talk about how social movements can play a role in issues like the gentrification and eviction crisis here in Durham, which is where I know you spend most of your time uh, as a lawyer and as a, as a clinical professor, and why a solution to those problems can't only be by fighting individual court cases, even though that's obviously critical work, too. Well, first and foremost, there simply just are not enough attorneys to fight all of these cases uh, for eviction. Durham averaged before COVID about 900 eviction filings per month. After COVID, we're somewhere around 540. So we just don't have enough attorneys to handle all those cases. But more importantly is that while fighting court cases is important, it's merely a Band-Aid. It's mere triage uh, to bigger systemic issues that need correction in the law. And the problem is that if we continue to move forward with the understanding that law is the only way, we're never going to address that systemic equality that's already been baked into the law. Uh, We do have groups on the ground who are already advocating for legislative change and policy changes, uh, but sadly, we don't currently have a remedy in the eyes of the law. So in order to change the law to be more equitable, it's important for people to have increased awareness. When people think of evictions, typically the first thing they think about is, oh, well, if you would just pay your rent, everything will be fine. And they don't understand that the main three reasons that you hear over and over in eviction court for reasons why people can't pay the rent is the loss of a job, unexpected medical issue with medical bills, or in North Carolina, a place where transportation isn't the greatest, um, a, a lack of transportation, a breakdown of your car. And even though those seem like perfectly reasonable uh, and rational reasons, none of those are legal defenses to an eviction action. And all of those things can happen to any of us. So the issue is that if it's not fair for the people who are going through it right now, then we need to go ahead and and have the foresight to plan for a better infrastructure. If anything, I think COVID has exacerbated the issues that we were already experiencing. And now not only is it just viewed as a low income issue, it is now viewed as something that can impact any of us at any time, given the next wave of Omicron, COVID, whatever is coming. So with evictions, there are a number of things that uh, create problems for people. One is the forcible removal from a property. And we do have groups like Bull City Tenants United 
who have organized to uh, stop the sheriff's ability to be able to get to certain people to remove them. As a lawyer, we know that that runs counter to what we have learned in law school. So that means that I can't be there, but that doesn't mean I can't encourage from afar. Likewise, we also know that the eviction and the forcible removal itself isn't the only issue. There are a number of collateral consequences that flow with eviction, one being the credit damage that an eviction judgment will do to you in general. So we actually have people who are trying to organize not just on the tenant side, but also uh, with the landlord lobbies to seek a change in the law that will allow for an expungement of a a civil judgment uh, related to eviction, particularly in the time of COVID. Uh, when so many people are at risk. Uh, But none of these things were embedded in a statute or a case. All of this stuff is the community getting together, deciding that they're tired of the status quo and wanting to change things and putting pressure on lawmakers, pressure on court officials and pressure on the sheriff's department to implement the changes that the community wants to see. So we've talked about what students learn, but I'm just curious for the students, can you talk to us about what you see the future of movement lawyering being in the United States and how today's law students may play a role in it. It definitely seems like um, the formalization of some community-based organizations just for lawyers seems to be a new new word development. And it's really cool to see, you know, lawyers like leaning in more creative ways, say like um, putting on Instagram graphics for what people should do in a certain state or area when they are facing eviction or just different guides and making those available and accessible on social media and just making the law really accessible and transformative in people's lives on a day-to-day basis. I think that's one of the really cool recent developments. Yeah. What I love about what I see the future of movement lawyering as is that there's no movement lawyering law firm. You know, you don't have to join the movement lawyering law firm. There's so many ways to get involved. You can either as a law student, you know, if your school has one, join a movement lawyering lab or advocate for one. Or if, you know, you're a law student or in practice, you can directly reach out to organizations that specifically are looking for movement lawyers or, you know, that you are passionate about and just do whatever you can to help empower their organization and what they're seeking. Whatever it is, or as Vanessa mentioned, making social media posts, you know, a share, a retweet, a like on a post or even helping create the post yourself. That's the beautiful thing is that there isn't such a high barrier of entry. There's no movement lowering uh, law firm. Yeah, and I think something for everyone, too. It's like, look at where the money is going from your firm when they donate um, or even for yourself. Where what organizations are they going to? Are they going to organizations that are directly helping the community? Or do they going to places where it's just going to you know, sit in the bank and make interest or be invested in other ways that are harmful? And I'm quite optimistic for your generation. And I think the reason I'm optimistic is because I believe movement lawyering isn't limited to national borders anymore. Uh, every time you see any kind of shifting of the cultural norms, there's always some new media. So we talk about Thurgood Marshall and telegrams and newspapers versus Martin Luther King coming through with TVs and Now we have social media where literally at the stroke of a send button, the entire world can know what's going on and support the uh, contributions to the efforts or just raising awareness. So you have the ability now to host a platform and have your issue on display, to tag it with a hashtag. Uh, And we can also tag our political leaders who are in positions to actually weigh in on these discussions 
uh, and see what their responses are going to be. And the thing about it is nobody, including the political leaders, knows technology as well as you guys. So you have an advantage and you have a voice and an opinion and something to say that will uh, shift the way that we operate in not just law practice, but the way that we operate in society. I'm really conscious of the fact that every every time we graduate uh, a class of, of law students, you guys go out and create the world, right? You are the ones who are going to be spearheading the change. And so the more that we can equip you here for not just the skills that you're learning, which I think are significant, but also the kind of inspiration and the vision to go out there and create the world that you want to see. That's what keeps Jesse and me going in this job, I have to say. (laughs) So this has been a wonderful discussion. I just wanted to see if there were any final thoughts from you all. Let's start with Anne. I guess for people who are, it depends who's listening, for all the listeners out there, (laughs) if you're a Duke Law student, I would definitely encourage you to come talk to me about taking this class. It's a really great way to earn credits while, as I said, kind of getting in touch with who you're going to be as a social change maker and figure out how you can use your skills in order to help communities and movements. If you are somebody outside Duke Law School that may be interested in getting involved, if you're a lawyer, you can also come talk to me about how best to get involved. Um, There are community organizations everywhere you look. um, And sometimes it just takes a little humility and a little stepping back as a lawyer to figure out how you can plug in best. But you can absolutely do that from wherever you sit. Um, And then if you're a law professor at another institution, I definitely encourage you to connect with Law for Black Lives or with any of the other professors that are running labs and clinics like this around the country, because there are so many of us. And we would love to talk to you about how to amplify that impact. Evelyn? I really want to thank the professor here for starting the Movement Lawyering Lab. I think hearing about the potential that our generation has to make change and all of this inspires me. But I sometimes worry that, well, we don't even know that movement lawyering exists or that we can be a part of that. So I really thank the professor for just bringing awareness to the fact that there is movement lawyering and that we can do something different that law school doesn't necessarily teach us we can do. Uh, So just thank you for that. And I hope anyone who's interested does get in contact with Anne. Vanessa. I definitely just want to note organizing is for everyone. Let me say it again. Organizing is for everyone. There's a space for you for whatever background you come from. Even if you consider yourself someone with like no extra special skills, you can do it. And I definitely want to thank professors for creating this class because I'm sure it took some organizing here. And I think it's so inspiring to see because when I look at, you know, like law schools or different organizations, it's the unique things like this that really touch life that just get me excited. And I know it excites other people as well. Well, this has been a wonderful discussion. Professor Gordon, Vanessa, Evelyn, thank you for taking the time today to share your experience with social movement lawyering. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Evelyn, Vanessa. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Duke Law Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to be automatically updated when new episodes are available.